All right, all right, all right, all right. Every time I put that mask back on, this my microphone tries to be eaten. But uh, anyway, so glad that you're with us. I can either preach like this, do a hard squat the whole time, or I can go ahead and fix this. All right, there we go. So we are uh, we're in the book of John. Uh, I'm so glad, we're not in the book of John, we're in the book of Mark. I'm in a different place this morning, I think, I really do. Uh, but here we are, safe place, 1439 uh, St. Catherine West. Are you at home? So glad that you're with us. And uh, we are going to be working through the book of Mark for um, many, many weeks. And so I'm looking forward to that, uh, really getting to see uh, closely who Jesus is. And um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So what I want to do is I want to pray. Uh, for, for me uh, and for us, that we would be um, open to, to whatever God has to say to us. I'm just trying to put a timer on. It's asking me to use data for my timer. Not going to happen. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you that you are, you are here, you're with us, that you are leading, uh, that you are guiding, that you are uh, protecting, that we want to hear from you. We want to hear it is what you have to say, and would you speak to us through, through your word today, and we love you. Amen. All right, so Mark is like an action story that we just get dropped into. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie like that. I'm sure you have. Like, all of a sudden, it starts, and, like, someone's in a, in a car driving somewhere, or like, an explosion just happens. You have no context for what's going on. It's kind of like the book of Mark. Um, it just drops you in, and you have to, like, run with him. And he says the word immediately 41 times throughout this very short book. So he is moving. This is an action-packed thing. Um, but life doesn't really make sense without story, does it? Right? When I meet someone, I don't say, Valentina, please give me 10 facts about you that are true. Right? We don't start that way. It's like, what do you do? Where are you from? Uh, maybe how, how old are you? Where did you go to school? Uh, what do you enjoy doing? Right? And we start to tell stories about ourselves. And anytime we get facts, usually we're, we're filling that in with stories. that We are story-formed people. That, that's how we've been made. So life doesn't make sense without a story, and Mark doesn't make sense without a story. And so what I wanted to do this morning quickly before we get into the text that Kelly just read for us is I want to remind us or maybe tell you for the first time the story that Mark is fitting into, that the Bible is this grand meta-narrative, and Mark is a piece of that, but it's, it's not the whole thing. It's not the whole thing. So let me tell you the story, and you're going to see bits of the story pop up throughout these these five verses that we're looking at this morning. So we believe, okay, at Church 21, uh, we believe in God. And we believe that there is one God who exists in three persons, yet is one God. And you're confused, like, it's okay, we'll get into that in this text. But we believe that God had no beginning, will have no end, that God is a God who is who created out of an overflow, not out of need, like he was lonely in some corner of nothingness and said, oh, I want to make people so I have friends to play with. God was completely content in and of himself, and he created out of an overflow. And at the, the pinnacle of creation, we see this, this thing over six days. You might think it's literal days or times. That doesn't matter right now. Um, the big idea is at the pinnacle of creation, God creates humanity. He makes man and woman, and he makes humanity different than all the rest of creation. He doesn't make gorillas or trees or starfish in his image. He makes us in his image, just like him, to be image bearers everywhere. And he puts us in this garden, 
don't think of like, you know, your little vegetable garden that you have and God like threw you in the cucumber section. God uh, created paradise. Think about Hawaii. Think about this beautiful, lush, full, like surfing. I know we have some surfers here, right? Like surfing was probably in there as well. Like beautiful, beautiful, lush, wonderful creation. And God's desire is that we as humanity would take the goodness and beauty of him and his creation into the rest of the world. It seems like there was um, this garden and then the rest of the world. And the rest of the world seems to be a desolate place. It wasn't fully uh, formed. It's kind of like when a farmer shows up at a, a, I'm not a farmer, so I'll just lose my language very quickly. Um, You show up at a piece of land and you're supposed to till it, I think, right? Till the soil and like remove rocks and stumps and all that stuff. You're supposed to do, do this, but it's wild land. And I think that's the story that, that we're into, that God puts him in this place and he says, go make the rest of the world like this, where my uh, glory and fame is seen and experienced. Basically, go make babies and culture and fill the earth with my glory. But soon after the beginning, Satan came into this garden, and we believe in a real enemy called Satan. And I don't have time to get into all of why we believe this and whatnot, but I could later with you. But we believe that Satan came onto the scene, and he brought the first conspiracy theory that ever existed. And he tempted humanity into an alternative view of reality. And he said, ah, you think that God made you like him, but that's not really true. You need, to, you need to enlighten yourselves. You need to embrace who you really are. And the only way to do that is by disobeying him. And he knows that when you disobey him, you're actually going to be an object of worship just like him. It's kind of like the secret sauce that God is holding out on. If you get a hold of it, you're going to be able to be really, really just like him. And they believed this. They fell into this conspiracy theory, and they believed the alternative view of reality, and they rejected that God is the only source of truth, and they brought in another source. And in that moment, by taking a fruit of of that tree of rebellion, uh, their eyes were opened. They were really enlightened, and they knew sin, not intellectually, but by experience. They knew evil by their actions and by their heart's desires. So in that moment, humanity became evil, We would call this the fall, theologically speaking. And death got brought into creation in a a very different way than death had ever been part of creation up to that point. And God actually came to them, dialogued with them, and then sent them out of of his garden into desolate places. And he said, life's going to be really hard, but I'm going to send someone who's going to fix all this. God gave a promise right after the rebellion that I know, I, know that, I know that you're broken, I know that you're bent away from, from living the way I want you to, but I'm sending someone who's going to fix this. Now, fast forward. I'm like running through the Old Testament really quickly, the first part of our Bible. We get to a guy named Abraham. Abraham, uh, God came to him and said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. The problem was Abraham was super old, his wife was super old and barren, couldn't have kids, and God provided a miracle, let them have a child, and, and then that promise would go through this man, Abraham. And then we get to his grandson, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And God said, I'm going to work through Jacob, who I'm going to rename Israel. We know the name Israel, right? The people of God. I'm going to work through this, this people to go out into the rest of the world and tell my people or tell people of how great I am. 
right? So Adam couldn't do it. He failed. Well, now we have Israel, and Israel was like a son of God to God, and he says, I'm going to send you out into the world to be my witnesses, but as we find out, Israel failed. Over and over and over and over and over, Israel failed. They got to experience freedom out of slavery in Egypt. They got to the, to the Red Sea, and God parts the Red Sea, and they get to walk on the other side of the land, like really crazy miracles that they got to experience, and they still rejected God over and over and over. And this is the rest of the Old Testament. Hear from God, desire God, find a, a new shiny object to worship, reject God, run after the shiny thing. And we're just waiting. We're waiting for that promised one to finally come, the one who is going to make all this right. And actually, at the end of the Old Testament, it's a book of Malachi, and there's 400 years. My son's named Malachi, and he just went, oh, right? Name drop. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Uh, there's 400 years of silence that God doesn't speak to his people in the way that he has up to this point. And so there's growing anticipation of what's going to happen. Like, what's, when's God finally going to speak? And then all of a sudden, we saw last week when Jordan was preaching that John the baptizer shows up on the scene as a voice in the wilderness declaring, prepare the way of the Lord. It means he's coming. The promised one that we've been waiting for is coming. Pay attention. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Get ready. But who is it going to be? Who's going to be that one? Now, the people of God had been waiting uh, with all kinds of views of, of who they thought it would be. Some thought he, he would be very powerful. Some thought that he would uh, be a political ruler. Some thought that he was going to come in and purge out all of the enemies of that land. So who's it going to be? This is what we get into today. It's really important that we know the story, the meta narrative of what's going on so that we can understand what Mark is leading us through. So if you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verses 9 to 13. Uh, as a church, we used to put um, verses up here. Uh, we're just not going to do that anymore. We're going to provide, if you want a Bible, we have Bibles. We can give you one of those. Um, we're just not supposed to give them out on Sunday mornings. So if you need one, please take it. Uh, there are these things called phones that uh, you can get an application, new version of the Bible. It would be, be really helpful for you. I am reading out of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, but just if you're like, why is this different than the ESV and what Kelly read? Uh, in verse 9, all right, here we go. I'm really excited about this. In those days, Jesus. In those days, Jesus. Now, what I want for us to do, I preached in NDG this morning. We have a location there. And there's this really weird picture of Jesus in the back that you have to look at the whole time that you're preaching. And it definitely does not look like Jesus. It's like that white, long, flowing hair, like European jawline, that, that Jesus, right? It's not who he was. Um, so what we have to do as we're reading this, if you know the book of Mark, is like, okay, I'm going to remove my preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. And I want to experience Jesus fresh. And Mark does not waste any word. Every single word that he says here means something significant. And so we're going to look at as many words as we possibly can. But here's who Jesus is. He would have been very normal. If he would have walked up to be baptized by John, which he was, we'll look at in a second, he just would have looked very normal. Very normal Israelite. Nothing special about him. No like glowing enlightenment halo behind him. Just normal guy 
carpenter probably, um, blue collar, this is who he would have been. But we find out in verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is one of the most obscure places. Think of like backwoods. Think of the, the, the place way off the beaten path that no one visits unless they have to. It's like the place that if you break down, you don't want to break down there. Like that's Nazareth. Very obscure. Jesus comes from a, a, an obscure background. Nazareth isn't mentioned once in the Old Testament, nor in the Apocrypha, nor in the intertestamental writings, nor in Josephus, the most famous Jewish historian. Nazareth is unknown, and this is where Jesus comes from. So there's nothing special about him at all, as far as we can, we can say, humanly speaking. In fact, John 1, uh, verse 46, tells the story of this guy named Nathaniel, who heard about Jesus, and that he was from Nazareth, and he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, is there legitimately anything good that we would want from there? Jesus was an outcast already, before he even began. And then it says that he came from Nazareth in Galilee, which is like a province, and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now, who remembers what the baptism was that we talked about last week? What type of baptism was that? Anyone know? If you do, just yell it out. What's, what's Nehemiah's middle name? We're all trying to figure that out. No, no. Uh, what, what type of baptism was it that John was baptizing people out in the wilderness with? The what? Yeah, water? Yes, water. What, but what for? What? No. Yeah, baptism of repentance. So Jordan used the words like, uh, what was it, here and clear, I think. If it wasn't that, I'm, I have the microphone this week, so I'm saying that's what it is. So it's like clearing things out of the way, out of your life, so that you can prepare your heart for this one who is coming. But if you're baptized... For the forgiveness of sins, what does that imply? That you're a sinner. And now we have Jesus walking up to be baptized. So what should we, if we're just casually reading through Mark, what would that tell us about Jesus? He's a sinner. We're going to find out very soon, though, that that's not true. That Jesus, rather than coming to be baptized for himself, he came to be baptized in our place. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. About 30 years old, we think uh, Jesus started this ministry and it began with a baptism. And as he was plunged into the waters, this is where people went because they said, I am sinful and I need to be baptized to get ready for the one who is coming. Jesus is saying, baptize me in that because I came for them. In a sense, Jesus is being baptized into our rebellion. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, a letter from Paul in the New Testament says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And this is a picture of what's going on in that moment, that, that Jesus was going to make a way for us to access God. I've never met anyone that said, you know what, I don't want access to God. Now, some of us might want access to God for selfish reasons, but we all want access to God. We all want access to power and control, right? But what, what Mark is helping us to see that Jesus is actually the sacrificial lamb that's coming to be plunged into the sin of the world. So this is how the story begins. Now what happens next is predicted hundreds of years in advance. 
700 years in, in advance. Like, we go crazy if we predicted a score, right? If you do the, um, wasn't it this past year, like the brackets for March Madness? I don't know if any of you like basketball at all. But it was like nuts. Like, in order to get the correct bracket, it was like a point whatever percent of a chance that you would have guessed that right. And if you guessed it, you were hailed as like a genius and rewarded with something. I don't even know what it is. But this is 700 years in advance that these predictions about who this one coming to inaugurate and start and bring to earth the kingdom of God, what he would be like. So we have to pay attention, right? If, you just read, if we just read Mark casually, we're going to miss some of these things. So this is why we're getting into it in, in depth. But the Old Testament said that the inauguration of the kingdom of God, that it was here, would happen with at least three things. And the first one is that the heavens would be opened. Now, let me read to you Isaiah. Isaiah was written 700 something years in advance. Isaiah 64 verse 1 says, if, you, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake in your presence. Right? If only you, God, would tear the heavens open. Listen to what happens in verse 10. As soon as Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. This is God saying, I'm doing it. Pay attention, I'm doing it. This is really happening right now in front of your eyes. I'm doing it. And this is the first act of creation where creation responds to Jesus. It says in the Psalms that when, when Jesus comes back, the trees of the field are going to clap their hands. Creation is going to celebrate that Jesus returns. Creation responds even when we don't. The scriptures say that if people didn't cry out and worship to God, the rocks would. Because the rocks know who Jesus is. So what God is saying is, is that rescue is on its way. The heavens are opening up. Something brand new is taking place. Now this tearing, that the, the heavens tearing open would have alluded to the Red Sea that I mentioned before being torn open. Same language. The Red Sea is torn open so that the people of God could walk from one side to the other in safety. Now the heavens are being torn open so that we too can walk from one side to the other in safety through this one who's here. The only other time this word, I'm not like a word nerd, I don't use these all the time, but some words are really important. That the only other time that this, um, this word for torn open is mentioned again in the book of Mark, is after Jesus dies on the cross. He's hanging there and he cries out, it is finished. And in that moment, immediately, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom, saying, access to God is now available. I have done it. It's all done. There's nothing more to do. There's no more, right? If we rip these open, it's like, well, let's make it more open. It's like, you can't make it more open. It's as open as it's ever going to be. Now walk through it. Now walk through it. The second thing that we see, let me go back to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse, um, verse 1. Isaiah is, is full from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 62-ish, uh, um, just full of, of messianic, Messiah, the promised one language. Listen to Isaiah 42, verse 1. Again, 700 years before, this is my servant, or this is my son. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, or this is my chosen son. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. This was an indicator of who was coming. 
Now listen to Mark chapter 1, verse 10. He came up out of the waters, the heavens were being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. The Spirit of God descends. This is a fulfillment of a promise that the people have been waiting for about this one who is going to come. And this Greek, I know I just said I'm not a word nerd, but this one's important too, that uh, the Greek actually isn't he descended onto him, it's the Spirit descends into him. It's like watching not just a cute little dove like flutter down onto Jesus' shoulder and, you know, he got to do this kind of thing with a bird there. It's he went into him, right? It's like he just became possessed, that Jesus in this moment allowed for the Spirit of God to possess him. And all of Jesus' life from this point forward was lived under the power of the Spirit of God. Now, you have to understand this, that Jesus, we believe he was fully God and fully man. Not half God, half man. Fully God, fully man, existing in two, two natures in one. We call that the hypostatic union, fun theological moment. Okay, the hypostatic union. And we believe that Jesus did not tap into his godness. It's not like he had a little mini fridge that when he was hungry and no one else was eating, he's like, hold on a second, let me go into my God fridge, pull something out for myself. He lived just like you and I lived. He had to. If he was going to be our sacrificial lamb, if he was going to be coming in our place, then he had to live just like us. He had to experience life just like us, but he was led by the Spirit through all of life. What Jesus was going to do is he was going to show us what a God-infused life looked like. And Jesus promised to his disciples, one day I'm going to, I'm going to leave you, and that's a good thing. And they're like, no, 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 it's not a good thing. Bad idea, horrible idea. Let's remove Jesus from that, but keep him in charge. It's like, no, it's the best idea because the Spirit of God is going to descend into you as well. And he's going to lead you, and he's going to help you to live a God-infused life also. This is good news. So heavens tear open, spirit descends into Jesus, and the third thing is found in Mark 1, 11. And I think this is maybe the most important verse in, in our passage. And a voice came from heaven. Remember, this is like sci-fi, stranger things, like heavens opened up. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I always have to change my tone. I kind of like operate and like yell all the time. I have to change my tone with this verse. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God, John's voice in the wilderness prepared people for the coming, but God's voice identified who has come. Right? God's voice is like, pay attention to him. In another account, we have two accounts of divine discourse. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, one God. Um, where, where God and, I mean, Jesus, God the Son, and some of his disciples are together, and they're up on this mountain, and the skies open up again, and God the Father says, this is my Son, listen to him. That's the only other time we hear God the Father speaking. Um, but we get to hear it very clearly here. And what we have, this is, this is absolutely epic. What we get is whispers of eternity in our day. This is the way that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been speaking to one another. This isn't just an identification thing where God's like, all right, I'm going to open it up and let people know who you are, and then I'm going to get back to Parcheesi in that corner of the galaxy. It's like, no, no, no. 
This is, a, this is a, a moment where he reveals the way that God has always been speaking to God. Listen to this statement by Tim Keller. It's a, it's, a long, it's a long quote, but it's worth it. The life of the Trinity. So the life of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. Now, when we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We center on the interests and desires of the other. And that creates a dance, particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us, that each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves and adores and defers to and rejoices in the others. And that creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. So this affirmation that God the Father gives over God the Son, He's been doing that forever. Trillions of years ago, before they ever measured time, God the Father's been saying, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's like, you are my beloved father with whom I'm happy to submit to. They're absolutely equal in essence, and yet they submit to one another and dance around one another in great joy. And we get to see a glimpse of that right here. He says, you are my beloved. This means supremely loved, top notch, and you're my son. And this isn't uh, you're becoming my son now in this moment. It's you've always been my Son, this carries with it the idea that you've always been the promised one. Since I made that promise to Adam and Eve in the garden, I'm going to send someone, you were there with me. It was our idea that you were going to come and be sent to do this thing. And as a son, as a son, Jesus doesn't only act for God, but as God. We're going to see all throughout the book of Mark that Jesus works with authority. People would look at him and hear him and they say, wow, he teaches with authority. No one teaches like that. The way that teachers would teach in that day is like, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says this. Jesus says, God says this. Or I tell you this, which means Jesus is speaking not for God, but as God. Right? It got tense in some meetings with Jesus. But Jesus would walk into a room and he'd forgive people. Jesus would see a demon and he would tell it to flee. Jesus would be napping in a boat. He'd get woken up by his disciples. Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus would speak to the wind and to the waves and they would stop. This is how Jesus rolled. That he was the one sent by the Father. And he makes this evaluation. Now, when God creates, do you remember what God said of all his creation? He said, it is good. Yeah, exactly. It is good. He evaluates and says, this is good. This is without fault. This is blameless. And this is what he says of Jesus. This is my son. He's good. He's good. There's nothing else good in this world. <laughs> but he's good. And he's coming to start a new creation. He's coming to start a restoration of all things. And in God making that proclamation, with you I'm well pleased, it's your identity I'm well pleased with and your works that I'm well pleased with. Everything you do, Jesus, is pleasing to me. It's what God is saying. Now, here's the hard part for us to receive, but I think that this is a game changer for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
this morning. I don't know what you've been struggling with lately. I don't know some of the temptations that you've had. I just don't know any of that. But here's the thing. If you are in Christ this morning, God says this over you. You are my beloved son or daughter, and with you I am well pleased. You might not be living a life that's pleasing to him, but because you're in Christ, because you're hidden in this one that was baptized into your sin, the Father's well pleased with you. He's well pleased with you. And he's in the process of bringing your life into line with being a, a life that is pleasing to him. Now, if you're a child, right, we do this in our house, that if one of our kids do something that they're not supposed to do, we say, this is who you are, right? This is who we are. We say, we, <laughs> I'm like doing our little catechism that we do. Uh, we are the Berniers. And we, don't, we don't speak like that, right? Berniers don't speak like that. We are the Berniers. We don't treat our siblings like that. We are the Berniers. We're not disrespectful, right? That we root what we do in our identity. We don't say, if you can't keep doing this, you're no longer a Bernier. It's, you are my son, you are my daughter, therefore we're going to live like this. But you don't gain an identity being my son or daughter based on what you do, you already have that. And that's what God is saying. You are loved, you are my sons and daughters, I'm well pleased with you. Now let me help you live a life full of the Spirit, infused by the Spirit to live in line with what I have for you. Because that's always going to be best. A life of maximized joy is going to require correction. If you're going to, um, if you're going to be super strong, you're going to have to correct some of the things you do. You're going to have, there's a, there's a weight bench in there that I don't ever use. Um, but there is one back there. And if you're going to get strong, you're going to have to use it. If you're going to learn to run marathons, you're going to have to learn how to run. There's going to be correction involved. And if you're going to be Christ-like, there's going to be correction. But that's a good thing because God has in store for you maximum joy. Not fleeting happiness, maximum joy that's rooted in him. And it's resurrection rooted in him. Resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus showed that he's never going to die again. And the resurrection joy is one that can never be taken away from you trillions and trillions and trillions of years from now. And this is resurrection love as well, that you can't scrub the love that he has for you. And if you're like me, you need to hear these things over and over and over and over again. There was a period of time, a couple of years, I think, where I would wake up in the morning and I would lay in my bed and I would say, Spirit, would you remind me of what the Father thinks of me? And without, without fail, every morning I hear, you are a beloved son of God. I'm like, yes, I am. You know, like, yes. And based on that, I can get out of bed today. Like, based on that, I have something to live for because I'm already accepted. I don't know if I'm going to blow it today. I don't know if I'm going to live the rest of the day. I don't know what's going to happen today. But today, as I'm like wiping like slobber off my face, getting out of bed, I'm a beloved child of the Father. And nothing I do is going to add to that or take that away. And these statements, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you my, I am well pleased. These are powerful because they're also weapons. Because you and I are going to be tempted to believe all kinds of things just like Jesus was tempted. Listen to verse 12 and 13. Immediately, immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. The angels were serving him. 
temptation, this temptation is not an accident. That's, that's weird to hear, isn't it? That the temptation, Jesus being tempted, was orchestrated by the Spirit of God and by Satan. Somehow, these two came together to meet a specific end. Now, I'll explain what I mean. Um, before I do that, though, let me just share this. I told you Mark is just full of, of imagery that we have to know the story well to really get it. But this word being dr- driven out, to drive out, that's, that's a word that, that people would have known the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, this is a day where everyone's sin is, is forgiven, like all at once. And they would have two goats, and they, the goats were there before a priest, and the priest would proclaim the sins of the people of God over one of the goats, and then they would slit the goat's throat, and that blood would be the atonement. Then the sins were proclaimed over this other goat, and it was known as the scapegoat. And that goat was driven out into the wilderness to flee and never come back, symbolizing that your sin has been paid for, and your sin is never coming back. God is not remembering that anymore. This is the same word that's told of what the Spirit does with Jesus. The Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness like a scapegoat. But if you're paying attention to this drama, you're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Jesus has a lack of food, Matthew tells us, different account. Lack of food, 40 days of no food, like giving into temptation would be quite easy. Like sometimes after I fast for one day, five o'clock, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, like I'll do anything for a burger. Right? You're just like, whatever. And Jesus is tempted for 40 days, 40 nights out in the wilderness. And the temptation, now we have to think of this as like two sides of a coin. The temptation is one side of the coin. And it's Satan who, remember, tempted Adam and Eve. And he says, are you really like God? Did, did God really make you like him? And his temptation to Jesus is, will you just be like them? Are you just going to be like the rest of humanity that came along and I've been able to tempt, right? Will you be like them? Will you give in? Will you give up? Will you find a different meaning, purpose, and value? On the other side of that coin is a test. That the Spirit of God drives Jesus out to be tested. And the test is, will you rely on God? Temptation is, will you be just like them? The testing is, will you rely on God? Because Jesus had everything he needed. He didn't need food. He had affirmation of the Father. You're my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He had the presence of the Spirit. And also there's, there's angels there. The, the word there is angelos, um, which means um, messenger. He had messengers coming from God to remind him and, and serve him as he was out, supposedly alone. And the temptation for Jesus, I know it, would be, is, is God's declaration of love over you enough? Look how powerful you are. You're, you're the son of God. If you're really the son of God, show me. I want to see it. If you're really the son of God, then you can jump off that place. Angels will come and pick you up. Like, be no problem. Just show me. Show off. Tap into that mini fridge of Godness. Jesus says, no, no. I, I don't need to do this. And Jesus overcame temptation in the wilderness for us that Jesus knows the temptation that you're going through Jesus knows the ways that you're tempted 
He understands it, not just intellectually, but by experience. He walked your life. Every temptation we have has root temptations that are all the same. And it's a route toward pride, doing things myself, whether that's getting approval on my own, control, comfort, power, whatever it is. The temptations are, are old. There's nothing new under the sun, right? So Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, but the good news for us is that he didn't sin. He didn't give in. And as Jesus was out in the wilderness being tempted, he wasn't alone. He had everything, actually, that you and I have. Hear this. Jesus in the wilderness alone had everything that you and I have. He had the affirmation of the Father. He had the Spirit. And he had these, these angels. We, we might not see angels, though we believe in them. We might not see them, but we do have the church. We do have the body of Christ. An analogy of what the church is in the New Testament is the body of Christ, that we serve one another and we build up the body. We care for one another. We aren't, we aren't just caring for our own body, but we're, we're put into a church where we care for one another and help build up one another. You are not alone. And if you're alone, it's because you've chosen to be alone. Hear that. You are being offered help. God is saying, I am here. I love you. The Spirit is saying, I am here. I want to I help you overcome. Jesus says, I died and rose in your place so that you could. The church is here to help you overcome temptation. And if you're saying, I'm all alone, it's by choice that you're alone. And what the enemy wants to do, what Satan loves to do, is he loves to get people alone. And then lie to them about who they are and who God is and what he did. And in that moment where you feel really alone, that's where you need to ask someone, would you remind me of what's most true of me? Would you remind me of who I am in Christ? Would you remind me of what Jesus has done? Would you remind me that the victory has already been done? I need you. That's not weakness. That's the spirit being strong inside of you, leading you to others to be encouraged and to be built up. You're not alone. The good news of this account is that Jesus did what Adam couldn't do, what Israel couldn't do, and what you can't do for yourself. He overcame temptation, and ultimately, we'll see at the end of Mark, he goes to the cross and dies in your place so that you and I could have that voice from heaven be, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Now, I want to add this one final point. Mark adds a really strange element at the end. Uh, here's how I prepare sermons. Um, I, I do uh, exegesis, which means I, I do work through the words. I, I look at the outline. I look at the context. I ask about 50 questions to the text, put it together into what would be a, a sermon. Um, but then I go to commentaries. Commentaries are people that write really big books, and they understand the context, they understand the words, they understand all these things better than, than I do. And I read four or five of them for every passage that, that I preach on. And wild animals, like why, why would he bring up wild animals in this text? It seems kind of bizarre. Of course there are wild animals in the wilderness. You know, we don't need to do the ecology or whatever of that. Um, some commentators said it could refer to danger or to demonic presence. But then two other commentators said something really profound. Mark was written during the reign of Emperor Nero. When, when did Nero reign? Does anyone know? 
This is like 54 AD, right? Somewhere in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there's that. So Nero, Nero was, a, he was a madman. They considered him absolutely crazy, right? One of the things, he hated Christians. Um, it's, you know, supposedly there was a big fire that took place and he blamed the fire on Christians. Um, but one of the things that Nero would do that we do know is that he would take Christians, and probably others, but specifically Christians, and he would take the skins of wild animals, and he would wrap them over them, and then he would send them to, to lions or to, to what would be like wolves, wild dogs, and let them be devoured. This was one of the ways to intimidate that, like, Nero saying, I am really Lord. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. There would be no other crucified gods in my, in my empire, my kingdom. And these commentators think that Mark inserted this as kind of like an Easter egg. If, if you have ears to, to hear, eyes to see, you'll see it. And Mark was written to Romans. So under the, the persecution of Nero. And in essence, what Mark is saying is that even if you get thrown to the wild animals, Jesus is enough. Even if you get tortured, even if persecution comes, keep your eyes fixed on the one who made the proclamation over you, that here is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You have everything that you need in him. Don't let these wild animals scare you because the one who has you wild animals can't remove from him. Someone's getting a call. Maybe it's a commentator being like, that's not what I said. It wasn't the best commentator. So in wrapping up, in wrapping up, Jesus overcame for us. He overcame for us. He did all this so that we could receive everything that he earned. Now, sometimes we finish sermons and it's like, here's the application. Here's what we need to go and do. There's not a lot of doing here. So there are three things. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God. I know you're like, yeah, yeah, you've said that a lot this morning. Like, why couldn't you get more creative? I thought you read commentaries. Like, you are a child of God. You have to let that, like, wash over you. You have to let that reality sink in because that's more true than anything that you've experienced today. You are a child of God. And that means that he wanted you. He intentionally, purposefully came after you. We have friends that live in Vancouver that just adopted a little boy from uh, Korea. And that involved numerous quarantines on both sides, like really long process. They intentionally went after this little boy on purpose so that that little boy could be brought into their family. God came after you intentionally, making all the payments of adoption so that you could be brought into his family. You were wanted. You didn't accidentally, haphazardly, somehow I'm a child of God. He intentionally set out to make that true of you. So this morning, sit back. Don't sit back too far in these chairs, but sit back and drink that in, that you are loved by a father that perfectly knows what he's doing. Second, he is pleased with you and he wants to bring your life into line with a life that's pleasing to him, one that's going to honor and glorify him. Think about the garden again, where God's intention was that his goodness experience in the garden would go throughout all the earth. That's what God wants to do through you. He wants for you to experience him and then bring it into the desolate places 
all over our city sharing of this great dad that would adopt. And the last thing is that you have everything you need. You have everything you need to overcome temptation. You have everything you need to live a life that is honoring to King Jesus. You have the affirmation of the Father. You have the presence of the Spirit. And you have the body of Christ. So this morning, let this affirmation wash over you. Let it, let it push out all of, all of the, the dirt that's accumulated, all the salt. You know, in the, the winter driving cars here, it's horrible, right? Lifespan of cars, especially underneath your car, is so much shorter in Quebec than most other places because it just gets all crusty with salt and, and rust. And you need to like go in there and, and power wash it and then put something under there so that the salt won't damage it later on. And sometimes this is what we need to do. We need to have the love of God like power wash us and then allow for the spirit to come and be that anti-rust that don't let, this, don't let these lies and doubts get back in there to cause more damage. And this morning, I think that God wants for us to recommit our lives to him. Saying, I, I want my life to be in line with you. I want maximum joy. I want to do whatever it takes to enjoy and sit under that well-pleased life that you're proclaiming over me. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond. Jesus, thank you that you came to do this, this epic task. Thank you that you were baptized into our rebellion so that we could be baptized into your likeness. Thank you that you came and you overcame temptation in our place. Thank you that you, um, you've allowed for that, that, that affirmation of, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. You've allowed that to come over us now because of your work. I pray that that would wash over our doubts and fears and concerns. And you would power wash us and cause us to be ready to live lives that are, that are pleasing to you. Jesus, we love you. Dad, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. Would you help us to respond well this morning? I pray this in your name. Amen.